0: I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. Martin Luther King, Jr. was born on January 15, 1929, and he died on April 4, 1968. He was 39 years old. Shortly after his death, a movement began to declare a national holiday in his honor. It took nearly two decades, but in 1983, Congress passed legislation to create a federal holiday honoring King on the Monday in January closest to King's birthday. And every January, I dedicate the sermon of this weekend, Sunday of Martin Luther King weekend holiday, to King's writings and the history of the civil rights movement. I've determined that the best use of the pulpit on this day is uh, not so much for me to speak about him, but to allow you to hear from the man himself. Some years I've read from his early speeches during the Montgomery bus boycott or his iconic I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I've read portions from King's letter to the Birmingham, from the Birmingham jail, portions of his Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. Um, I'm well familiar with the Sunday sermon he preached, the last one of his life at Washington National Cathedral three days before his assassination. And his great I've Been to the Mountaintop sermon on the night before he died, I've been to the mountaintop, and I've looked over, he said, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I know that as a people, we will get to the promised land. Today I'm going to read to you from the last book the king wrote before he died, entitled Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or community. It was a difficult book for King to write, written in a difficult time. The year was 1966. King was never a stranger to trials and tribulations, but this was perhaps the lowest year of his life. He was being criticized on all sides and hounded by frivolous investigations by the FBI. His popularity had plummeted among both blacks and whites, and in particular, a rising generation of young black leaders had lost faith in nonviolent resistance. He had experienced several humiliating public failures. He was struggling against his own demons of exhaustion and despair. You can feel the weight of the world on his shoulders as you read. And he begins with a blunt assessment of the state of affairs for black men and women in that moment, contrasting the euphoria that he and others felt as they had gathered around President Johnson just one year before as the president had signed the Voting Rights Act into law. Contrasting that euphoria with the biting disappointment many now felt. He writes, on the 6th of August, 1965, the President's room at the Capitol could scarcely hold the multitude of white and Negro leaders crowding it. Today, the President declared, is a triumph for freedom as huge as any victory that's ever been won on a battlefield. Today, we strike away the last major shackle of fierce and ancient bonds. But just one year later, King writes, some of the people present at the signing ceremony were leading marches in Chicago amidst a rain of rocks and bottles, among burning automobiles, to the thunder of jeering thousands, some waving Nazi flags. One year later, the white backlash had become an emotional electoral issue in California, Maryland, and elsewhere. In Southern states, men long regarded as political clowns had become governors, their magic achieved with a witch's brew of bigotry, prejudice, half-truths, and whole lies. During the year, white and Negro civil rights workers have been murdered. And the swift and easy acquittal that followed for the accused had shocked much of the nation, but sent unabashed triumph through southern segregationist circles. Many of us wept at the funeral services, not only for the dead, but for democracy. And during the year, several northern and western cities, most tragically in Watts, young Negroes have exploded in violence. In an irrational burst of rage, they have sought to say something, but the flames had blackened both themselves and their oppressors. I was seven years old when all this was going down. Where were you, those of you? It was a confusing time, and many had given up hope, hope in themselves hope in one another, hope in finding a way forward without violence. And from that place, that hard place, King tried his best to put the challenges of that moment into a wider perspective, to build bridges with his adversaries, to call the country to task, and to put forward once again the transformational potential of nonviolent resistance in an even more challenging context. With Selma and the Voting Rights Act, he said, one phase of development in the Civil Rights Revolution had come to an end. A new phase opened, but few observers realized it or were prepared for its implications. For the vast majority of white Americans, the first phrase had been a struggle to treat the Negro with a degree of decency, not equality. White America was ready to demand that the Negro should be spared the lash of brutality and coarse degradation, but it had never been truly committed to helping him out of poverty, exploitation, and other forms of discrimination. And when Negroes looked for the second phase, the realization of equality, they found that many of their white allies had quietly disappeared. The Negroes of America had taken the president, the press, and the pulpit at their word when they spoke in broad terms of freedom and justice, but when the expectations of the Negro clashed into the stone walls of white resistance, the result was havoc. The Negroes felt cheated, while many whites felt the Negro had gained so much it was virtually impudent and greedy to ask for more so soon. Reading King now... You can feel the reverberations of time in the ongoing struggle for justice and true equality. He, he calls white America to task for our superficial commitments. The great majority of white Americans, he said, are uneasy with injustice, but unwilling yet to pay a significant price to eradicate it. But he also spoke to the rising bitterness and anger and call for violent resistance among rising African-American leaders. And he did so with great sympathy and understanding. I should have known, he writes, that in an atmosphere where false promises are daily realities, where deferred dreams are nightly facts, where acts of unpunished violence are a way of life, nonviolence would eventually seriously be questioned. But in the end, as you know, he rejected violence as a strategy and a way of life. The ultimate weakness of violence, he said, is that it is a descending spiral, getting getting to the very thing, becoming the very thing it seeks to destroy. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie. Through violence, you cannot establish truth. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, he said. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And so King, in the last year of his life, returned to the foundational principles upon which he based his life and his lifelong commitment to helping all of us create a better day. Like life, he said, racial understanding is not something we find, but something we must create. A productive and happy life is not something you find, it's something you make. And so the ability of Negroes and whites to work together, to understand each other, will not be found ready-made. It must be created by the fact of contact. Our most fruitful course, he said, is to stand firm, move forward nonviolently, accept disappointments, and cling to hope. Our determined refusal not to be stopped will eventually open the door to fulfillment. By recognizing the necessity of suffering in a righteous cause, we will achieve our humanity's full stature. To guard ourselves against bitterness, we, must, we need the vision to see this in this generation's ordeals the opportunity to transfigure both ourselves and our society. Epiphany Church, this year we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of King's assassination. And between now and April 4th, the day of his death, all manner of events will be planned here in the nation's capital, culminating in a mass gathering on the Capitol steps on April 4th. And I simply encourage you to join me in spending some of this season between now and then reading or listening to King's words. Go to the monument again erected in his honor and ponder the words there etched in stone. Search your libraries or the internet to read or listen to his convicting, powerful speeches and sermons. Read them aloud at your dinner table. You'll be a better person for it, a more hopeful person, a grounded person in the things that make our lives worth living. Let me leave you now with just a few words from a sermon he preached with the same title as his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? As for me, he said, I've decided to stick with love for I know that love is ultimately the only answer to humankind's problems, and I'm going to talk about it wherever I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about love in some circles today, and I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love, for I have seen too much hate. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen, too many white citizens' councils to want to hate. Because every time I see it, I know that it does something to them, to their faces and personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I've decided to love. And if you're seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. For God is love, and love will have the last word. In the name of God, amen.